All right, everybody, we're live. I believe we're live. I've just pressed the button. I think we're on. Um, so welcome, everybody, to Brain Food Live on Air, bringing it to you every Friday. And this is yet another exciting conversation, a necessary conversation to have, um, because I think we've all kind of seen the effects of this phenomena um, expressed in our real struggles to find candidates. Where are the missing workers? That is the topic of the conversation today. And I wanted to kind of elevate the chat and get it to a kind of labor economics uh, level. Um, because we know, as, as recruiters, we know what the situation is on the operational side. We speak to candidates every day. We try to find them. We know the struggle. But what is actually driving that candidate behavior at a higher level. So we've got an amazing guest lineup for you today. I assure you, these people should actually be on TV or something, but somehow they're on Brave Food Live. What can I tell you? Um, okay, let's do some uh, sound checks first of all. I want to make sure everyone can hear me okay. I've actually had to rejig my setup because I broke my microphone, which is like a real disappointing thing for me to do. Um, so it's actually quite important. It's a serious question. Can you hear me okay? If you're in um, Crowdcast right now, can you just indicate with the audio is sounding as it should, um, i.e. you can hear me. It's just it's not just me um, miming um, to camera. Uh, let me know in the comments below there. Uh, we are also live streaming this on LinkedIn. So a couple of you, maybe 50 or so usually, 50, 60 people, I think, watch this on LinkedIn Live. Um, if you can see me on LinkedIn um, and you can hear me there, can you indicate via some sort of emoji whether the audio is okay there as well? Um, okay, loads of people saying yes, that's fine. And we're piling this out onto Facebook and Twitter as well. Somehow 50 people watch this on Twitter. I don't know who you are, but, you know, thank you very much for doing that. Okay, people are, look like they're, 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 they're hearing it okay. Um, okay, let's firstly thank our sponsors. We always have to do this after every show. I'm actually amazed that every episode is continually sponsored. The demand is really high. Um, and it's, I think, testament to, you know, how great our community is that vendors want to want to support uh, a conversational show like this. Um, so I just want to give a quick shout out to one of the nicest companies around. And I think one of the best products around it is iSIMS, uh, more than just an ATS. I found this out actually in the iSIMS Inspire event that I attended last week in the Gherkin, but they've got all sorts of really interesting things there. You know about, you know, can they ID recruitment market automation? This has got an internal marketplace in there as well. They've got all kinds of new innovations that are occurring within their platform really exciting thing to look at and, and to observe. Um, ISIMS, I don't know where they're at in terms of their market positioning, but I do believe they're probably one of the top two or three uh, with regards to the kind of up and coming uh, sort of products out there. We know the dominance of the likes of Workday, SAP and so on. Um, but do check out ISIMS if you are on the market looking for an upgrade on your ATS. And by the way, I spoke to Scott McCray, who was the co-founder of Canada ID, uh, who, of course, were acquired by ISIMS uh, six months or so ago, I think. Um, and I asked him, look, is it possible to buy Canada ID as a standalone? He said, yeah, absolutely. So it may well be that it's one of those things where you don't want to buy the entire thing straight away, but there's other bits that you like and you can potentially still... Um, you know, get hold of uh, that functionality without necessarily swallowing the whole piece. Uh, so anyway, do check them out. And make sure um, you uh, you uh, you have them on your list when you're thinking about an ATS upgrade. Okay, um, uh, we've got obviously. Hopefully, everyone's used to this change of scene. We're going to bring our guest straight on, get into the conversation. So let's make sure we do that. Um, I'm going to invite a few of our folks on. I can see them already. Um, let me uh, actually let me just see if I can get Anita on. There she is. Um, and also we have Pavel, I believe. Let's see whether he's around. He is. There we go. We have Sarah Ali as well. I hope it's not too early for Sarah. Hopefully these folks can come on. By the way, for the guests you've just, um, I've just kind of uh, mentioned, uh, there should be a, a pop-up. You can see that. Um, hi, Anita. Hi, Pavel. Hi, um, Anita, you know what? I think there's a possibility that I can hear my own voice to your computer. Is there, is there something we can do about that? Maybe some headphones would be useful, or if you have some other means to. Yeah, that's perfect. Put those in, that should work. Okay, cool. Let's do some intros first. Um, let's go with you, Pavel. Pavel, can you quickly introduce yourself? Who are you? What it is you do? 
Uh, sure. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Pavel, and I'm an economist at Indeed. I'm based in the UK, and I manage our hiring lab team in Europe and Asia. And we are all economists who do labor market research. Fantastic. And by the way, the hiring labs blog on Indeed is absolutely a must read. Um, I, I don't think you do a great job of marketing it, Pavel. I have to say, I don't think people <laughs> well, know about it. Yeah, I think it's you're really, doing a great job. From... Uh, people should read it. It's really, really good. And it's accessible as well. It's one of those things where, you know, when people think about labor market economics, they, it kind of, it might be a little, feel as if it's beyond the operational recruiter, but actually it's really accessible, really readable, and really important that you keep doing it. So support that uh, blog piece. Really good. Uh, we have Sarah Ali as well. Dr. Sarah Ali, can you quickly introduce yourself? Who are you? Yes. What do you do? Hi, hi, nice to see you again. Uh, yeah, Dr. Sarah Ali here, based in Olympia, Washington. So it is six o'clock in the morning here. So I'm here to join all of you with my coffee and espresso. But yeah, Radency, actually HR tech firm doing a lot of interesting stuff with Fortune 500 clients and recruiting and retention. Nice to meet you all. Great. And by the way, just without sort of uh, in order a fair distribution of praise, but the Radency blog is also really, really good, particularly with your work, Sarah, actually. I was always interested in, like, you used to post some stuff out there, and I forget who it was that kept pinging it over to me. That was good, but the focus that you do uh, now with the, 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 the labor side, I think, is, again, vital reading. So make sure, share the link down there, Sarah, worth people checking these out. This is where I get a lot of my information from, folks. So if you want to go direct to source, that's how you do it. Okay, we have uh, Anita Letting as well. Anita, great to see you. I think it's the first time we met, actually. Actually. So if that is the case, it's my pleasure. Uh, welcome to the show. Um, can you introduce yourself real quick? Who are you? What it is you do? Hi. Yeah, I'm calling in from the Netherlands. Um, I'm a future work speaker and an HR tech analyzer and uh, or advisor, and I work uh, globally. And great to have you on the show. Anita, I hate to be a pain in the ass, but the audio on your side is really loud. Is it possible to just turn the volume down just a touch? Um, and then hopefully we can just calibrate that and make sure it doesn't uh, it doesn't sound too loud. Um, yeah, it's annoying. I mean, sometimes the uh, the AV is like, it's difficult when you're doing a broadcast where there's multiple people on, uh, on air because the mic will pick up sort of things coming through uh, the laptop. So hopefully we can find a way to uh, to fix that. Um, okay, have a fiddle with that, uh, Anita, and we'll, uh, we're going to get on with the general topic. Um, okay, so the first things first, um, let's just set the scene. And I, I want to be corrected by our panelists here. So, because our panelists, basically, you can correct me if my, I'm, I'm wrong, because I'm basically one of these people that is simply an amateur. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm interested and I'm observing this. So I think we first encountered this labor market paradox in more or less 2020, at the end of 2020, beginning of 2021, where we had like multiple millions of people being made redundant in uh, the, the, the pandemic lockdowns. And everyone just assumed this labor would be available to come straight back into the market when we were ready to re recruit again. Didn't happen. And we couldn't figure out what was going on. Why were these people not there? And then, you know, we just struggled through the next year or so trying to find these people. No one had any good idea with loads of conflicting information. Um, end of 2021, beginning of 2020, we were, 22, we were charging again. It was like a real sense of optimism. You know, the swinging 20s were going to repeat themselves. It was going to be one of those amazing decades where everyone's just going to go for it. You know, after two and a half years of lockdown, uh, post-vaccine, we're all going to be growing like crazy again. But again couldn't find a candidate it's not there um so is that general description correct i want to talk about the theory as to why this is and what we're going to do about it later but is that what you're seeing from the data what do you guys think uh go to you first there pavel uh sure yeah i think uh, that's an accurate description i think there's some nuance depending on which country we're talking about uh certainly the us and the uk are quite different and continental europe is a little different as well but uh yeah we've seen employers and recruiters pile into the markets very suddenly and that has led to really some major boil uh, bottlenecks on the hiring front yeah very interesting how about you sarah what's your what's the general view us side yeah, same thing in the US, I would say, you know, as well as Europe, like, you know, we have now a higher civilian labor force, but nothing obviously is back to the pre-pandemic levels, right, what we saw. And people are still obviously experiencing so many challenges with hiring, uh, recruiting, retention, and so forth. So yeah, super similar. 
Yeah, very interesting. Okay, um, so uh, folks, this is this is part part of the reason why we can't recruit, right? <laughs> I mean, if you're struggling to hire people, um, uh, this is part of the reason. It's actually really important because I think that sometimes the business is relying on recruiters to inform them as to where the candidates are, and we have to educate the the, the hiring managers that actually no, it's not because we're incompetent or not because this that and the other. There is this global phenomenon, it seems, that nobody can do the hiring, even like big countries that have huge population i think india is really struggling to hire we have indian people watching this right now i think zahir's in zahir let me know is that the case in india suddenly a candidate shortage which in india had previously never had this they always had different issues had assessment issues they had um you know people showing up on on, on time and all this type of different types of problems but india seems to be oh here's suddenly a new issue um Anita, I'm still picking up keystrokes from you. Um, so I don't know what that is, but I wonder whether we can do something. Maybe if we, we log back in, um, close down different browsers and what have you, and then come back. Um, and then let me know when you're back in chat and I'll invite you back in. Um, might be one way to try and do it. Yeah. I know, I know. It's a struggle. It's a real struggle. But try, try and like uh, okay. log, log in and we'll see what we can do. Yeah, really, really. No, I want to get Anita onto this, but um, but yeah, sometimes it's difficult to uh, to figure out figure out what's going on. Right. So if we look on the poll, folks, um, check this out. Down on the bottom, you can see the poll. Um, what is your number one theory as to the cause of the this labor market paradox? And it looks like it's a number of different things. Um, uh, this is. Um, oh, it might just be me. I wonder whether that's the case. Um, thanks, thanks, Richard. We're going to bring Anita back on ASAP. I just want to make sure everyone's audio is basically okay because it can be tough when uh, things are, things are difficult. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, we'll go back to this at some point, but it looks like elevated job seeker expectations is one element. Work life rebalancing, which I guess is similar, is another. Um, so. Um, in terms of sort of your analysis, have you been pressured by Indeed or anyone in, in, in Indeed, Pavel, to come up with a narrative, like to describe what is going on? Yeah, certainly there's a lot of interest in, in the narrative and describing what's going on. And I think what's making this more complicated is that in many ways, in many countries, we haven't quite recovered from the pandemic and reached a new normal in the labor market. And we are already entering a new phase, you know, with very high inflation, with recession risks rising, especially in Europe, but also to some extent in the US. So it's kind of like the, the issues are uh, getting layered one on top of another. And I think uh, one of the things that we are seeing really across uh, the world right now, at least across, across the developed world, is that uh, the economy is slowing. Um, the labor market has certainly reached a turning point. So we're no longer seeing you know, the huge growth in job openings, job vacancies that we saw over the past year. But at the same time, the hiring challenges still persist. There's still a very high number of postings on Indeed, uh, high number of job openings in the official stats and unemployment um, and the availability of workers to, to enter the labor force is still quite low. So we're kind of at this uh, crucial phase, I think, where it's, recruiters are still finding it challenging to find candidates for a lot of jobs, but yet the outlook is, is really changing and there's a lot of uncertainty about how things will look like, you know, six or nine months from now. I just remembered I need to bring Tony Wilson on to, to the show as well. I knew I was missing somebody, um, uh, but hopefully he can uh, pop up uh, in a minute and also give us his input. Um, very interesting to hear that job posting volume has kind of gone down. Um, is that So I, I assume that's going to help somewhat, isn't it? Because a, an element of not being able to find candidates might be um, competition from other people. So, you know, if there's a thousand job postings, there's a hundred candidates, you can imagine it actually being... Um, uh, much tougher than if there's 500 job postings and there's 100 candidates. Um, so uh, can you give us some numbers, Pavel, on what you're seeing at Indeed in terms of job posting volume? When you're, when you're saying that's the case, can you describe what that is for us? Sure. So what we're seeing is that uh, in the UK and in most of the major European economies, there's been a steady gradual slowdown of uh, just a few percentage points uh, in terms of job postings falling off from their peaks, which were reached earlier this year. Um, so uh, so that's something that kind of is happening steadily. Uh, we're seeing, still seeing in most countries like the UK, Germany, and France that 
job volumes are about 40% higher than they were before the pandemic on a seasonally adjusted basis. But the, the gradual slide is happening and, and we're seeing a similar thing in the official statistics on job vacancies. Uh, the US um, is also seeing that trend to some extent, though in the latest uh, JOLTS job openings data, uh, job openings actually ticked up again in July. So uh, it may be that that easing of hiring conditions uh, is still to come uh, in the US to a slightly greater extent than in Europe. Um, and, and we're also hearing anecdotally from a lot of clients, for example, in the retail sector, in the transportation sector, that it has become marginally easier to find candidates. Uh, but at the same time, we're still seeing, you know, very low unemployment. Uh, the, the workforce isn't really growing very much. So uh, those challenges are still persisting to a large yeah. extent. Very interesting. And even though there may be a slowdown of job postings, you're saying it's still at a, a higher than pre-pandemic. Um, so we can't be uh, walking around just relying on the competition to go away uh, for us to be able to hire. Uh, Jacob, you may actually mention a really interesting point. I think that's also true. Job posting volume itself is a decent measure, but it may not be 100%. Not, not, nothing's 100%. But there are companies that simply stop doing it because it's like, okay, it's a waste of time. We're not getting anybody here. Um, we need to apply our budget and our resources elsewhere and do it that way. Uh, folks, uh, I want to just introduce Tony Wilson. Uh, Tony Wilson's director of um, Institute of Employment Studies, I believe, Tony. Um, great to see you on the show. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um, can you... Uh, Kind of give us a little bit of commentary on what you're seeing um, from as, as a narrative. Like, what is an explanation? Do you feel is a strong explanation as to why this labor market paradox has been persistent over the past two years or so? Well, thanks for first up. Thanks for having me on. Um, so, look, I really agree with a number of the points have already been made. Um, in the UK in particular, what we're seeing is really significant numbers of people leaving the labour force and not coming back. Um, in many other countries, people are coming back, they're coming back to work, but we're getting, but we've got this, you know, um, these challenges, these frictions in the labour market because so many people are moving jobs. Um, in the UK, we've got fewer people in the labour force and more people moving jobs uh, and the nature of work changing. And that's kind of a per bit of a perfect kind of storm for us here. Why are there fewer people in the labour force? There's sort of three principal reasons. One is a lot of older people in the UK have left work and I think many of them have left work permanently. So we've seen a really significant growth in economic inactivity. Uh, a horrible phrase, but it means anyone who's not in work, but also not looking for work or not available for work. So they're not unemployed, they're not looking, they're not available. Now, we've seen a growth in terms of over 50s, about 700,000 more people economically inactive. Um, for people under 50, the numbers are broadly flat. So that's probably- So hang on, mm. that's premature retirement. Like they've, they've checked well, out, right? They've, they've stopped- No, working. interestingly, people aged in their 50s, it's about, it's about a quarter say they've retired. The other reasons people have left is, I didn't feel valued in my job. My job was too stressful. Uh, I've got a health condition. I was laid off during COVID and I'm not going back. Uh, it's not flexible enough. There's lots of reasons, but there's good data on this. About a quarter are retired. That's the most common reason people have left, but three quarters have left for any one of these other reasons. And actually three quarters who have left would come back. And the things that would bring them back would be a job that I enjoy, a job that matches my skills, good social company at work, more money, obviously, greater flexibility. If roughly in order, flexibility came out on top, then pay, then, you know, social company, jobs that I enjoy. So we're not doing enough to think about how we attract older people back into the labour force. And a lot of these people aren't looking for work right now. They're relying on savings and pensions. Most say that those pensions and savings won't last them long enough. They won't be able to retire on them. Um, but it's many want to work. And so how we how we think differently about how we can engage people and bring them back is really important. So that's, that's problem number one. Really, super briefly, just on the other two, and I'll come back and I'm really happy to talk about those as well. Really, rising long-term ill health across ages is a major challenge. That's probably not long COVID, but it's, you know, among other things, it's the kind of collapse of our health services, the difficulties people are having in accessing healthcare. Uh, and the third reason is Brexit. It's lower migration. And migration has driven a growing labour force in the UK since 2006. You know, labour force has grown by an average a quarter of a million every year. And most of that has been because of higher employment of non-UK 
born workers. Since the referendum, that growth has slowed by nearly 100,000 a year. So there's half a million gap right there uh, over, the, over those six years. So these three factors combined are causing, you know, are, are driving these shortages of workers. That's really interesting. And Brexit, obviously a UK specific scenario, but I would imagine immigration generally has have been hammered um, uh, over the last yeah. couple of years through things like lockdowns and pandemic issues and even traveling to different countries. It's only this year, I think, that we were able to actually go to different countries without going through a, a quarantine process or without going through, you know, some high risk scenario, which might stop you from even going anywhere. So I can imagine there's been a general slowdown of the flow of workers. Um, which is very interesting. Now, I'm, I'm interested in this older workers scenario because I'm I'm kind of heading right in there. You know, I'm, I'm kind of into that into that uh, category. Um, would it be fair to say that there's a period of time where we, we made a lot of people redundant? I think 100 plus million people were made redundant during pandemic. I don't forget what the number was, but an extraordinary large number of people were made redundant. Um, would it be fair to say that a lot of those people uh, had a feeling, said, "Okay, great, you've made me redundant at a critical time." I don't owe you too much. Um, uh, you know, I'll come back on my terms. And they've, they've come back basically a lot more bullish and a little bit kind of offended by how they were treated on on, on, on the first wave of pandemic. Any thoughts on this? Uh, Anita, I'll bring you on in on this. What, what's your what's your kind of um, observation on that phenomena particularly? Yeah, I would be really careful with that statement simply because... In many geographies around the world, the number of people in jobs is now higher than it was before the pandemic. So that contradicts um, that statement. People are willing uh, to come back. And you see that in, especially in uh, economies that during the pandemic um, entered into programs with employers to keep people in jobs. So in fact, they subsidized employers um, to uh, hold on to their workers um, instead of uh, firing these workers. I think the major issues that are behind all these worker shortages are numbers, it's demographics. I do a lot of work with um, population pyramids. And when I show these to people, that always makes it so, so clear. So the number one thing that I would recommend to anyone listening to this conversation, find the population numbers for your, for your country, and then just look at the difference between the 55 and 65 year olds, and let's say the, the, the 20 to 30 year olds. And for all of the Western economies, what you will find is there are less people getting into the workforce than getting out, which means we simply have less bodies. And like Tony said, um, a lot of the immigration that naturally provided us with more people during the pandemic, that completely stopped. And those people went back to their countries and found jobs there. And I want to point out something else that is on the one hand sad, but on the other hand also helpful. Um, if you look at countries near Ukraine, you can see that their labor shortage has somewhat diminished. I just looked at the numbers this week because I was doing some work for Europe. And what you see, for instance, in, um, in Poland and Romania is that the number of people in job have, has gone up and the number of job openings has gone down. And that is a consequence of... Ukrainian people moving across the border, fleeing the war. And so that shows that immigration plays a big part in many countries in filling jobs. And because we have not had that for two to three years, that so influences our local uh, labor markets. Okay, thank you for introducing that point, uh, Anita. And that, that kind of aligns, I think J Jacob's very keen to, uh, to talk about this. And we do need to talk about it in recruiting. As, as an industry, we kind of, uh, I, I can't remember us talking about population statistics or worker population or even things like, you know, labor force replacement type of terminology. But we do need to talk about it because we cannot rely on immigration. Brexit is one example. That's kind of, uh, you know, in the UK politically, we've made that decision 
COVID is another thing that's been a massive friction uh, to people moving around also. Um, but we've got away really from, you know, in some ways you could see it in, in as, as, as exploit, uh, exploiting poorer parts of the world, bringing workers in um, to solve a problem which is fundamentally about not enough people that are able to work um, or we've got too old as a society um, and we, we don't have enough taxpayers, we don't have enough workers to support the infrastructure that we've put in. And it seems to be a, a universal phenomenon. I think if you look at any uh, sort of uh, um, country that has gone through the development path, they all have the same thing. They end up sort of reducing the numbers of, of, of kids they have. Um, and then ultimately over time, uh, over a couple of generations, get themselves in a situation where they need immigration uh, to fuel society. These are bigger problems than we can solve today. Um, but that's something that I think COVID, Brexit, and you know uh, um, the uh, the recent kind of dissembling of the international system, if you like, has kind of shown us um, that we have uh, these issues. Um, okay, very, very interesting. Um, Jacob, thanks for sharing the data there. Please do keep panning that through. It is interesting to talk about um, the neighboring countries that have absorbed the large volume of uh, refugees fleeing the war in Ukraine. Um, and we're talking millions of people here. So this is not a small number of people. And we're also talking about working age people. Generally speaking, a lot of young people have left. Um, and, and, you know, there is an economic uh, outcome to this um and very interesting anita that you mentioned um that uh you know we've seen uh, more workers employed and less job postings as a result of it it should make a difference if you have three million extra people that you didn't before um so i guess that tells us a lot in terms of how we need to rethink maybe how we uh, d uh, treat uh, uh asylum seekers refugees and so forth um uh, right now uk certainly has a very hostile policy you know that is still prevailing attitude is um not only keep them out but as soon as if they do come in it's like prevent them from working um because because we you know they, they're not provided with interaction with the state so they can't actually contribute um and then we blame them for not working and then you know it kind of feeds into that narrative so maybe we need to uh, really reset all of this um okay let's deal with the, that big question it's such an overwhelming question we want to deal with it at the end of the, the the conversation otherwise it might just overwhelm everything we're talking about here um let's deal with some of the other uh, sort of uh, theories as to why this was tony i think you set it out for us really well uh, let's have the panel all contribute to some of the uh, uh, the points that you made um so let's talk about the older people firstly um uh, is there a, a case like what kind of work do, do does anyone know like well how do, how do we get uh, that generation back and i'm hesitant to use the language and I've, i'm kind of heading my, that direction myself it's not going to be a couple of years before i get there um but let's say you're 50 55 60 so on like that what are your demands for an employer um any thoughts on this and by the way folks if anybody watching this is of that age range please do comment let us know what you're thinking about when you're looking at job opportunities we need to just get that out from behind the scenes to talk about it a bit more uh thoughts let's uh, throw this open to everyone Look, I'm, I'm happy to jump in. Firstly, I really agree with Denise's points about, about demographic change. And so this kind of then means that I think policymakers, recruiters, employers need to think more about how we encourage people to work longer in general, support people to work longer, but also think about how we can help people to work more flexibly. Um, yes, it's really important in particular if people have got care and responsibilities, whether that's children or elder care or or, or whatever. So how, how we can you know, raise participation in labour force is really important on older workers. I, I think a lot of the evidence in the research suggests, you know, I think we all have a sort of stereotype in our heads about older people in employment. I mean, actually, you know, that, that's, you know, I'm five years off being in that group too. I think, and actually a lot of the research shows really clearly that that now that, that, they, that older people work in the same sorts of jobs as younger people are motivated and similar values to young people, but really important differences. They may not have looked for work in the recent past. So how we help people to recognize the value of their own skills, to understand what sorts of jobs may be available, the transferability of skills that they've got, think differently about the jobs that are av available is really important. And then some of those some of those factors motivate people, maybe slightly different, but 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 you know, nonetheless fairly similar points around kind of flexibility at work is clearly really important, as is um uh 
as is around trying to find things that, that give that, that that enable people to use the skills that they've got and to and to sort of develop those and grow those and you know improving security at work um, matters too. But there's a ton of like different factors there, I think. But I, I suppose my general point, I don't think actually it's that necessarily that different to how we support other people, how we try to support other people out of work to to come back in or, or, or people who may be looking to change jobs. No, but Tony, you did mention something really important, which is actually yeah, something that recruiters can action. Like we can deal with this. Um, uh, you know, one of those. This is not a conversation where the, these up, these topics kind of fly over our heads. We can actually deal with this because it could well be that an older worker may not have been on the market as as, as frequently. Perhaps they found themselves inadvertently on the market a couple of years or so ago. Their, their last experience of looking for work then might have been in the late 90s or the uh, not the late 90s but the uh, 2015 16 that kind of level we're already like eight years past that so the world has changed in terms of job search how people behave has changed what people expectations behave maybe what recruiters should be doing is coaching or just identifying okay here's how basically the most optimal way to look for work is this um, these are the new things that you need to get involved with. Even basic stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm again I'm, uh, using broad brushes, so forgive me on this. Um, but there's a there's a there's as a possible perception. Probably, I'm uh, I'm prepared to actually uh, uh, suggest this may be the case. But perhaps an older person that's in the 50s, 60s, and so on may have less fluency with things like video, for instance. Um, they may they may have less sort of quality in terms of the technology. Um, you know how young people, young people tend to be very much updating everything and have to have the best things all the time. As you get older, maybe those things become less important for the job search. Perhaps that's really significant. So there's things that we recruiters can do. Um, I'd be interested to know from the crowd, actually, whether, you know, anybody is doing anything. Are we targeting, you know, over 55 specifically? Does anybody have a diversity program that kind of thinks about ageism and so on? I'd love to hear from you if you do, because maybe that's a, a show topic that we can run in future as well. Um, okay, cool. Um, let's talk about the, um, the 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 second point that was mentioned, which I think again is under uh, kind of uh, uh, under discussed. Long term illness, long term illness, not only COVID and mm -hmm. long COVID, but also because COVID nineteen stressed the health systems so much globally that basically lots of people that had issues now have bigger issues because they weren't seen or treated. Um, and some of those things have become debilitating. And by the way, as a person who's recently had COVID um, and I think fully recovered, but it did knock me out for like five days, like legit, I could not operate. Um, and you just wonder where you hear stories about people that have these persistent symptoms. Like I can totally understand why they may not actually be able to do any work because it is that way mind fog you can't you know you don't have control of, of, of your body it seems your motivation is on the floor energy is on the floor i totally get it if you look at the numbers particularly in the us by the way um i think uh, i forget how many people were infected by covid in the us i think it's a very high number um uh, but the I, I read somewhere uh, sarah i wonder that you confirm but something like five hundred thousand people maybe suffering yeah. from long-term disability directly as a result of covid yeah, no, absolutely. I wanted to chime in here, actually. So yeah, obviously, in the US, we've been hit, you know, hit by COVID, obviously. But um, I was looking at a Brookings Institute study, this was two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, about 4 million Americans are no longer in the labor force because of long term COVID. There was a paper released, I believe, by Stanford and MIT about a week and a half ago in the Wall Street Journal, uh, citing that 500,000 Americans are no longer in the workforce due to COVID. And I think from my recent blog post, Hong, thank you for sharing that. Um, there was a survey conducted by the U.S. Census Bureau. It's called the Household Pulse Survey. You know, they asked 100 million American questions, right, about, you know, the economy and so forth. And I think after retirements, the number two reason for not being in the labor force was because of long-term COVID issues. And the other issues were caregiving, right? So the long-term COVID and the caregiving are kind of uh, related together. And so those are kind of the barriers we're seeing. And, you know, one point I'll make, I know Anita talked about numbers. I wanted to add to that, you know, it's fertility rate, right? It's immigration rate, it's mortality rate, all of these different uh, variables, right, they impact the labor force. But, 
you know, Radency, we actually ask candidates questions about what are the factors that they prioritize when they're applying for jobs. And it's interesting, year over year, what I found, at least from our data, is that work having a greater purpose, interesting and challenging work, and then, you know, good people to work with, that to me, those were the three factors that were more important than things like compensation or location. So, you know, I think right now it's still a job seekers market in the United States, you know, maybe a little bit so in the UK as well. But just kind of interesting that people are still thinking about those factors. But uh, yeah, that's what I wanted to say. No, really interesting point. Two, two separate points there. But let me, let's deal with the first one. I mean, those numbers are really astonishing. 500,000 is a big number. Um, and, and that's not including the people that have primary caregiving responsibilities, of course. So um, going back to your initial uh, observation, Tony, where there was an, a number of people that were in, economically inactive, so to speak, um, but they weren't prematurely retired. Like how many of those are actually because they, they've got an obligation, they have to look after somebody at home. Um, I mean, I've, I've had that situation back in the past when, you know, my, oh, my mom was in really bad shape. Uh, obviously she's okay now, but I had to take six, six months off. Like I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't work. I had to take that time away. So um, uh, that is a, a very significant factor. I, I guess work for like having a flexible job is going to help in some way. Um, back in the day, going into the office, that's a, that's a no go. Uh, if you have to have 24 by seven, at least observational, you have to be there. Um, but if you're in a case where you could deliver some work um, remotely, that can help. Um, and maybe we get to the, the kind of idea of doing things fractionally as well, fractional work. So maybe you're no longer working 40 hours, 50 hours for one employer, but you could do five hours here or 10 hours there. Because um, probably even primary caregivers might have that kind of time if they're able to flex it across, uh, you know, the, the, the week. Um, I don't know whether the panelists have ever been in that situation. I mean, have you ever sort of had to devote primary time to caring for somebody um, and, and what would it, what does it look like in order to do a job for an employer? If, if could you do those two things simultaneously or, or how, how would that work? I don't know whether anybody's a parent here or anybody's had that sort of experience. No, I can speak to that really quickly. So during the pandemic, my father actually had a massive heart attack. And so, you know, I had to leave the state of California, go back to the state of Missouri. I opened up an LLC. So that's kind of how I was side hustling. I actually left a full-time job and just got a little entrepreneurial. And so, um, you know, things got back to normal. Then I kind of just re-entered the labor force as a full-time employee. But yeah, that's, that's what I was dealing with. Yeah, very interesting. And I think an important point here is there's formal and informal flexibilities matter here. And so we have, we have seen a growth in, I think we've seen it when well, we know from the research, we've seen a growth in both since the pandemic, but we're seeing some retrenchment in both as well. So formal flexibility, it could be more people working part time, you know, more compressed hours, greater flexi time and different sorts of arrangements. And we obviously in the UK, similar to the US and many other economies, have a real diversity of working patterns and employers can often, and it's not always two way flexibility, but we have seen greater kind of uh, rebalancing flexibility, I think, in terms of what employers offer and what candidates want, and the tighter labour markets help that. The informal flexibility, though, around how we help people deal with emergencies, how you know uh, crises around childcare or around elder care, um, that's the stuff where I think, in particular, hybrid working has enabled more of that. Um, and I think many workers don't want to settle back into the old ways of being of being expected to attend and expected to work certain hours. Now, for employers, this presents challenges too around fairness and equity, and also, you know, bluntly around around productivity and how we how we what we monitor and measure and how we try and ensure that our workforces are are effective. I think many now, so data is really important in this, but it's good to hear more employers talking more broadly about kind of prosperity, uh, you know, organizational health, the health and well-being of their staff, and what they produce. I don't think we're there yet. I don't want to say everything's fine. It clearly isn't, particularly not in the UK. But I think firms are thinking more about how being more, focusing more on people's well-being, trying to offer more informal flexibility and two-way flexibility as well, you know, in terms of more formal um, contractual flexibility can can help with retention, help with recruitment, but also improve improve productivity, make organisations more effective. Um, so that may be a positive that comes out of the pandemic. It's probably been helped by this tighter labour market. Yeah, I think basically employers, there needs to be a different conversation. I think employers have always, maybe back since the Fordian era, has always been trying to just 
like maximize productivity from their staff. Like the idea is like any, any second that you're not doing, adding value to my company is wrong. Like <laughs> you need to add every single second, uh, but that obviously leads to burnout. And it obviously leads to a lot of people that become um, annoyed at the company because they, they can't take care of other things in life. And I think shifting the last two years, obviously COVID been a nightmare, but one of the things it has given us is a little bit of a window of what life looks like when you do have some of that feeling of, oh, I can actually do bits of life admin in and around my my work and I don't have to take half a day off to to to, to do this stuff. Um so I, I think we're very reluctant to to give that up, which is definitely uh something we we need to be conscious of. Um with regards to flexibility um and productivity, um I mean I've been like hammered um uh sort of online for saying that yes you are less productive um sort of away from the office. Um, uh, but, but that, I think that's the reason why we like it. <laughs> you know, we, we don't want to be maxed out all the time. Um, uh, that is exactly, we do less work remotely. Of course we do. That's why we like it. Um, and we should defend it because it's a better way of living than trying to argue on the productivity side, because I think, okay, if you argue on the productivity side, I think the bosses will win that. Um, they, they will be able to say, you know what, if I cram you into the office, we're going to crank out more crap. Of course you are going to do that because you're forcing people to absolutely focus on really degrade uh, their their life management um, as the trade-off. Um, whereas we as workers should say, you know what, um, uh, I've got 100% of the time, employee, you can have 80% of it, but 20% I need for myself to do this various thing. Anyway, we can argue that at another point. Folks, this might be a natural break, which is something really useful. We always do this at um, the middle of every show. Um, Brain Food Live is a conversational show. Um, and it needs to be a conversation starting show. Um, and obviously, we have to come off air um, at some point. Uh, we're already halfway through. Uh, what I don't want Brain Food to ever be is a, is a place where it's a bottleneck and the conversation stops because we, we can't broadcast anymore. Um, so what I want everyone to do, just take a moment, share your LinkedIn profile into the chat stream on Crowdcast here. Or if you're on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you're watching it, just share your link to your LinkedIn profile in a comment thread. And then you simply connect with everyone else who is uh, sharing the same link. Um, everyone who's watching this show right now is interested in this topic. Um, you know, why are, where are the workers? What do we do about it as recruiters? Um, why don't you connect with all of these people? Um, and then you've got like a network of folks that you can talk to about these, these challenges, if you so want. Um, there's no reason why this conversation should not continue after we come off air. So take a moment and stick your LinkedIn in the various places that I've recommended and then connect everyone there. I would love to connect with you, by the way, but unfortunately I've hit the limit and I can't, so don't be offended. Um, okay, cool. Um, we've lost Tony, by the way. I don't know why that is. Um, uh, can... Tony oh. said in the chat that he had to turn his camera off, but he's back, so maybe oh. you could reconnect him. I can actually see him on screen. Let me just remove him and then add him again. Um, so Tony, I'm going to kick you out and then uh, you can come back in. How strange. Um, but in the meantime, yeah, in ahead. the meantime, there are some other really good comments in the chat. So uh, Lisa, for instance, was uh, saying that you know we're talking a lot about skilled workers. We're talking about remote work. Uh, that's obviously only available for you know at most a third of the workforce, possibly less. Uh, but there's a huge part of the workforce that you know really needs uh, a wage uh, that pays the bills. Um, you know, I think those types of workers also value flexibility, you know, well-being and care uh, is, uh, for others is one of the reasons. Uh, but of course, you know, those workers also value uh, non-salary benefits as well. Um, and we have actually just published some research um, in the U.S., which shows that uh, when we look at some key uh, non-wage benefits like paid time off, um, health insurance, uh, that has been rising uh, in job descriptions, probably thanks to a tight labor market. And actually, we've seen the fastest increases in those types of benefits in low-paid jobs. So that that's kind of like uh, low-paid jobs catching up to the kind of more skilled, higher-paid jobs in terms of uh, the benefits that employers offer. Now, of course, in in Europe, we have a different situation in the sense that you know we we do tend to rely on public uh, systems for things like health insurance. Uh, but there's also a, a role for employers to play there, I think, in terms of, you know, either topping that up in countries where the public system is failing, like like in the UK, 
uh, or you know, adding other benefits related to flexibility and well-being that people care about. Are you, are you um, talking? Think, are you talking the UK down, Pavel? Uh, sorry, I mean it's uh, you know I'm just kind of relating this to the point that Tony made earlier, which I think is a really important point about long-term illness being uh, you know one of the biggest uh, causes of the growth in inactivity. But actually, before this call, I was looking at a European survey from 2018, which included the UK, uh, where people were asked about whether they're experiencing unmet medical care needs. And back in 2018, which was obviously well before the pandemic and had nothing to do with COVID, the share of the over 16 population in the UK that reported unmet medical care needs was 22 times higher than in Germany or Spain. So that is a long term problem. And, uh, you know, I think employers, besides lobbying politicians to to shore up the health system, you know, should really think about okay, you know, can we afford to offer something that that helps you know helps people uh, be healthier, fitter, better for work in that situation. You know what the healthcare of the the health of the population is such a massive impact on the economic power of the of the country, isn't it? Um, I mean, if, imagine if, you know, the entire pop, everyone just got fitter by 10%, let's say, fitter and healthy, but by 10%, uh, the overall economic power of that is going to be enormous. But if you cut the healthcare service or you kind of relegate it as something as really low down or you, you stop regulating on, on food quality or whatever it might be, then suddenly you're going to make your, your, your population more unhealthy and then you're going to have this drag factor, people getting sick. Um, people not being productive because they're, you know, not in great shape, um, retiring earlier, whatever it might be. Um, so, yeah, it's really short-sighted not to deal with that. I want to deal with Lisa's point on um, manual versus white-collar labor um, because I think that is a critical point. We are in a white-collar bubble, obviously. We're on we're on a, a video call. And we're, we're kind of doing all this. Many people are not on there. Um, and, and those are the people that I think um, – I guess let, let me just say what I want to say. Is there some sort of attempt by people who are in manual labor to move away from that work and into a world where they can access flexible labor? So let's say I am a, um, I don't know, I'm, a, I'm a, a, a waiter at a restaurant. There's no flexi labor there. I've got to be at this restaurant. I've got to serve these customers. I've got to be there all the time. I have no flexibility. I don't want to do that anymore. You know what? I'm going to find a job that's doing something else that's more computer-based and I can do this. Labor force uh, reallocation. Does anybody have any data on this? And does anybody have any uh, commentary on this idea that there is a shift of what the type of jobs people want to do uh, uh, in order to find the flexibility that can't be done in these other jobs? Anita, you want to say something? Yeah. So I want to make a suggestion first. Um, I would really like to use the term desk-based versus desk-less because it takes every connotation out of the conversation, right? So you have people that work at a desk with computers and you have people who don't. And I think what we have seen in many uh, countries that people who were desk-less during the pandemic suddenly were called to do jobs that were desk-based. Uh, think of everyone that was needed in vaccination programs, for instance, on in, in, in call centers, um, people helping in, um, in hospitals. So a lot of people that were deskless before the pandemic experienced what desk-based work looked like during the pandemic, and those people will not be back. That's as simple as it is. That is one of the reasons why um, uh, restaurants have such a problem hiring people at the moment. Governments have um, minimized the employment in those centers, but it is not gone because everyone is thinking what will happen in the fall. But also at the same time, many of these people acquired skills that allow them um, to uh, go uh, go and move on to another desk-based jobs. And those are typically the jobs with higher salaries and more benefits. So it's a logical uh, evolution, I would say. And who would blame them? So that is, that is what I know. <laughs> That's a very, very interesting observation that actually the, the pandemic economy, if we can call it that, 
um, where there were millions of people employed to help manage the pandemic was actually a massive skills training program. Um, and, and it diverted a bunch of people who they were taken off from doing the work that they couldn't do. Remember all the restaurants were shut. Remember all of the retail was shut. They were repurposed to something else. And guess what? They want to, they want to do it again. Say, similar with airlines and flights and stuff. Like how many people will let go there? They ain't going back. Um, you know, all the, all the warehouse workers or the, the people that move the luggage around an airport. No, they're not doing that job again. Um, so there was forced labor force reallocation enforced by the pandemic and that has basically uh, really changed the game for a lot of different sectors now i've read a few uh, sort of um reports again as an amateur but two different reports i think one from the uh, european central bank and from other places has made the argument that there hasn't been any significant labor force reallocation now, what are your thoughts on this? As I said, every report is, is going to have a different flavor, but I want to just go around to everybody um, uh, from your observations. What are you seeing? Um, can we explain some of the sectoral challenges based on people leaving that industry and going somewhere else? Um, Pavel, let's go to you uh, on this one first. Sure. So I would kind of tone down the reallocation talk a little bit just because you know, the workforce is huge and a lot of the job switching that we've seen, at least in the UK, has really been within sectors rather than necessarily across sectors. And so if you look at the data on workforce jobs by a major sector like, you know, manufacturing, construction, healthcare, and you look at the share of jobs by sector and how it's changed over the last three years, um, there have certainly been some changes. So we've seen uh, kind of a slow, steady decline in manufacturing and construction and um, uh, wholesale and retail trade. We've seen a rise in health and social care, education, administrative services. But those are fairly marginal changes just because the, the kind of the composition of the work really changes fairly slowly. So, so you know, I... I you know, I, I wouldn't say like the, the workforce looks radically different today than it did, but there are certainly some trends that the pandemic has accelerated and some other longer term trends related to demographics, the aging population, the decline in manufacturing that we will be seeing. Very interesting. How about you, Sarah? Let's go to you. Labor force reallocation. Is it happening? Yes, no. And to what degree, if so? Hmm. Oh. <laughs> had some mic issues. Sorry about that. Um, no, I agree with uh, with Anita and with Powell in a different way. Um, I definitely think that in the U.S., for example, right, we have high vacancies in accommodation, food services, travel industry. With respect to what Powell said, yeah, I, I think there's some um, allocation that's happening, but maybe more so within the industry. But I think for me, the point I'll make really quickly is that I think there's a paradigm shift in behavioral choices that's happening. Uh, last week, Larry Summers, former U.S. Treasury Secretary, he was on the American Enterprise Institute, the think tank, and there was a webinar and people were asking him questions. Do you think that the U.S., I'll speak for the U.S., the U.S. will ever go back to pre-pandemic? And he said, no, we are in a different world right now. And I get this question asked by clients all over. Um, do you think that the labor force will come back? Will the labor force participation rate go back up? And I actually have now come to this point and this acceptance, actually, it's almost like philosophical where I don't think that's going to happen because not until you address the issues that we talked about today, caregiving, long-term COVID, mental health, all these other like non-financial um, you know, factors. I feel like you need to address those before things come back to normal or if a normal you know what, is the, even the UK possible. government's uh, sort of um, posture on this is simply to cut the benefits. Um, it, you know, it's like saying, okay, um, you're, yeah. uh, you know, we're going to force you into work by literally removing uh, your lifeline, therefore work to live. You know, that's the, that's the policy right now. Um, absolutely incredible. Right. And we've done it in the U.S. too, obviously. Sorry. And and still, apparently, we, we well, still can't I, I find can people. I can imagine people resisting it and also thinking, you know what? Stuff this. I'm going to yeah. literally farm things. Um, you know, our subsistence farming. I, I think a big re uh, before crypto crash, lots of people went into crypto because I felt that they were trying to get an alternative to going back to the this constrained uh, workforce. They were saying, you know what? I can actually make money in a different way and literally get out of this sort of uh, rat race because I'm never going to win that race. Right. Um, uh, we, we have the quiet quitting Absolutely. phenomenon, which I know people say, look, it's a media manufacturer thing, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it may be something deeper than just that. It could well be it is 
broadly middle-class people, white-collar working, quiet quitting, um, basically recognizing that it's a big game. Um, and they're never going to get uh, to the promised land by working super hard. So you know what? I'm withdrawing my labor. It's almost like a quiet strike, um, uh, which I can totally, uh, totally understand uh, sort of why you would do this. Um, okay. Um, uh, uh, finally, to you, Tony, labor force reallocation. What are your thoughts? Is it happening? Uh, so look, I, I agree with with um, with Pavel's analysis because the labor market changes very slowly and some of these changes tend to be quite small, but it's happening at a faster rate, labor force reallocation and these changes in occupations and sectors. It's happening at a faster rate now than before the pandemic. And I think what's interesting is the last year or so has shown us how quite small changes in what in the labor market are actually quite small numbers do have these really significant um, effects in terms of the frictions for people moving between work in terms of issues for employers, especially when it comes at a time of, of, of rising demand and, and contracting supply. Uh, yeah, supply not contracting everywhere, but certainly in the UK, it's getting tougher. So I'll give you an example, job to job moves. We have about uh, right now, a million people are changing job every three months in the UK. That's the highest it's ever been. But before the pandemic, it was about 800,000 changing jobs every quarter, every three months. So it's not actually a massive difference. And this isn't a labor market of 30 odd million people, but it's enough that it is caught, you know, that is a really significant driver of, um, of what's then causing these issues around how we backfill and, and combine with lower supply. So I think, um, so I think, you know, th there's definitely re-allocation happening. Um, some of it is from lower skill to high skilled as well, for the reasons we've talked about. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it just shows how these small changes actually can make can have quite big effects. Is that guy doing some house renovations? I've, I've actually got to leave. You know, I'm, I'm joining you from a conference that, from one of our conferences in Brighton. So I'm in a hotel corridor. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. And, uh, and I, I have to go back to our conference now. Actually, I'm afraid. So I'm gonna I'm gonna jump out. No worries, Tony. Wonderful to have you. Thank you so much for, uh, oh, thank for you. jumping in and having this chat. I've been wanting to have a uh, get you on the show for a while, and you've come in and really delivered uh, everything that we thought. So enjoy the rest of the conference, Tony, and thank you for your contributions. Um, okay, folks. Um, let's talk about where we go uh, going forward, um, because the global economy uh, looks like it will. Uh, we've lost uh, Anita as well. That's okay. You know, sometimes you got to leave. I get it. Um, I got to leave myself in due course. Uh, no, um, we are seeing. Um, uh, I think uh, increased risk, obviously, of moving into recession higher and higher interest rates in, 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 in terms of trying to control inflation, that's sucking money out of the economy. If the Federal Reserve continues hiking the rates as it's going to do, um, then it looks like everyone else is going to have to follow and hike those rates also, which means it's going to be at least a slowdown in growth and maybe a tip into recession. Now, if that is the case, how does that change the relationship between employers and, uh, and and employees? Uh, does it reverse a little bit to the point where actually, you know, a lot of the the reasons why uh, employees are resisting coming back to work um, uh, are they going to lose a bit of their negotiating power uh, if we're in a state where you know energy bill cost of living is going through the roof? Uh, the economic opportunities actually con uh, contracting because uh, companies are start slowing down growth. Suddenly, employers will be able to hire, and the cost of employment will go down. Thoughts on this? Let's go around. Um, Pavel, go to you first on it. Sure. I think that really depends on um, how governments react to the situation. To be honest, because um, right now we're seeing a situation where you know job openings are trending down in, in many countries. And so if the economy tanks, that decline in vacancies may accelerate. And that may mean, you know, fewer job openings, uh, less bargaining power for candidates and for workers. But at the same time, you know, at least for the time being, we're seeing, you know, the unemployment rate still staying very low. And the unemployment rate also tends to move quite slowly, you know, so uh, outside the COVID recession, if we look at past recessions in Europe or in the US, it usually takes quite some time for the unemployment rates to rise through lower hiring, in part also through some layoffs. And so it takes time for that pool of labor supply to really build up. So I wouldn't really bet on kind of like a major shift in uh, hiring conditions kind of right away. Uh, it will probably take us a while to get there. And at the same time, you know, I think, why does government intervention matter? Well, I think, um, in some countries, like in France and Germany, for instance, you know, there are 
kind of permanent furlough type schemes that employers can avail themselves of. And I think the COVID period also created a precedent for those governments to ease the conditions of access to those schemes and for other governments like in the UK or the Netherlands to actually create such schemes when things really, really get bad. So I think that could also uh, kind of put us in a situation where maybe, you know, there's less hiring, uh, companies reduce people's hours or, or put them on, on furlough. And that doesn't necessarily mean that those employers who are still hiring are seeing a ton of new labor supply. Yeah, uh, we have to be creative. I'd be interested to know what organizations do do. Like, for instance, do you do reduce hours, for instance? Um, is there uh, any incentive for companies to share labor in, in a way which we haven't seen before? Um, uh, you know, the, the new innovations, I think, will, will occur. Um, Anita, go to you. Uh, let's say we're heading towards uh, tougher economic times, recession occurs, cost of living crisis, energy crisis. I've just seen my, I'm going to take my uh, gas meter reading immediately after this call and submit it straight away. I've already seen what it looks like. It's like times four. It's going to be horrific. Um, in that scenario, do you see kind of the, the conversation between employers and employees changing and uh, do you see that employees will have to basically cave in a little bit more? Workers will have to kind of compromise their current position and re-enter the labor market in a way that they haven't been doing so far? Yeah, that depends very much on where you live. Uh, because I talked about demographics earlier, and that means that with the number of vacancies as they currently are in a number of geographies, even if there were a recession, um, the fact is still that more people leave the workforce than enter. And I'll give you an example of the Netherlands. Every year, around 60 or 70,000 employees leave the workforce that will not be replaced by younger people. So that gives you an idea of the magnitude of this problem. So for, the, for at least for the 2020s, I foresee that in... At a minimum, Western Europe, but probably also more mid and Eastern Europe, North America, um, we will be in a situation where it will be where it is really tough to get the people you want. Do you know what I? We're going to have to do another show talking about demographics. Yeah. Um, because I think this is a big topic. We, we don't talk about it enough, but it may well be the just under, underlying everything. That may be the yes. Answer, right? So it, um, it's I think it's actually threefold. So it's demographics. It's also skills, right? A lot of the vacancies are for people that are simply not there because we did not educate them. There are way too few people coming out of IT studies here, and in many and in many, for many other geographies, that is exactly the same. Um, so that is, and then the third, the third topic that we didn't discuss at all today, but it is one of my favorite topics is automation, because I think a lot of this can be solved through automation. And I'm not talking about, about replacing people. I am talking about alleviating manual repetitive activities from a person's workday. So they actually have eight hours to spend on value add activities instead of you know, creating reports and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, reports have got to go, folks. Don't you agree? No one <laughs> needs to write a report ever again. That was a bad. That was a bad example. But think you automation. Know, I think that's absolutely true. Why uh, uh, producing a report is basically a failure of information supply. Uh, right. Uh, that information should be available to the person who needs a report. There shouldn't be a report. Anyway, thank you very much, Nita. We'll definitely sure. do this show. Um, right. A final word to you, um, Sarah. T tell us about um, uh, a sort of potential recessionary scenario, does that change the game in any way with regards to candidate shortage? Yeah, I mean, you know, look, the, the US on our side, at least we've seen the Fed increasing rates, and that's obviously designed to impact, right, consumer spending, there's less of that happening, companies are collecting less revenue, there's more uncertainty, there's a contraction of vacancies, with that, we see higher unemployment, that's like the simple macro flow. And then if you subscribe to the Phillips curve, right, that's basically that inverse relationship between inflation and unemployment. I mean, I was looking at projection numbers from UCLA Anderson School of Business, University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and they're thinking like around 
around 4% by the end of 2023. I mean, what is the unemployment rate, right? It's like the number of unemployed over the labor force. I mean, so I feel like companies are going to be in a better position slightly, and I say slightly, and I think people who are actively looking for a job, right, who don't have one, that's the unemployed population, um, you know, there'll be a bit more competition, but I think people are really cautious. I mean, just based on that recent JOLTS data that I was looking at, where we saw quits go down in the last three months, right, but then layoffs slightly going up. And so next Tuesday, the JOLT numbers are coming out for the U.S., so I'm kind of curious to know what's going to happen. But yeah, that's kind of what I'm seeing right now. Yeah, and we shouldn't underestimate that all of this uh, kind of chaotic world that we're in increases risk aversion from everybody. Everyone feels like discombobulated with it all. Um, and, and that's just got to change your confidence a little bit, right? It's, you, no one feels on safe ground. No one feels, oh, yeah, here's the next 12 months. I can totally predict what's going to happen. No, yeah. no one knows what's going on. So that's going to stop people potentially from being as bullish going out there and finding new work. Wow. Anyway, listen, folks, what a great show. A conversation is obviously nowhere near finished. We have to continue it in some way. Hopefully you'll find the time to do it yourselves when you go uh, and, and connect with everybody, whoever recommended you connect with. Obviously, do follow our amazing guests um, uh, and, and make sure you connect with them on LinkedIn. Let me take the time to thank everyone for joining us. So um, Anita Letting. Thank you so much for joining us. Sorry for the uh, little bit of a problem on the mics. It's probably my uh, thing rather than anybody else's, but I appreciate you persevering. And thanks for inspiring a future talk. We'll definitely talk about this um, a demographic issue. There's a few people already I know that are very passionate about it. And we've got to think like some really deep things. Like how do we actually increase uh, the number of people in, in society? I guess that's having more kids. Um, you know, How do we make them? If people don't want to have kids, do we start doing artificial wounds? Do we start like cloning people? Let's go for it. You know, I don't see why not. We have to. Um, so, Anita, thank you so much for joining us. Have a very good weekend. Um, uh, Pavel, uh, great to see you as well. Thank you for joining us also. Wonderful to get your insights. Um, again, I'd love to try and get some more uh, input from uh, uh, you on this. So uh, if you're happy for it, we'll try and bring you back before the end of the year. Have a good weekend, sir. Um, and uh, Sarah, really good to see you again. Thank you so much for your uh, insight also, Sarah. Really appreciate it. Um, thank you so much and uh, you have a good weekend. Great. Wasn't that amazing, everybody? I thought that was absolutely fantastic. Um, I mean, I'm not sure we, we've solved any problems, but you know what? We can't solve every problem. I hope we've just been able to elevate the conversation a little bit and get us thinking um, about some of these bigger issues. Hopefully, some of the things we've talked about today might help you in internal conversations you have with your hiring manager, with your boss, um, with anybody who's, who's sort of giving you demands, um, because you can start explaining to them with a bit more confidence, you know, why there is this um, candidate shortage and why it's difficult for us to uh, to find the people that we, we've been charged to find. Um, okay, that's about it. Remember, we're going to be back on Monday with Brain Food Break Fresh. That's when we're going to review the Sunday newsletter. If you haven't read the newsletter or you're not subscribed, make sure you do that. It's newsletters.recruitingbrainfood.com. Um, and we'll be back next week. I'll be in Lisbon next Friday. And we're going to be talking about blockchain, Web3, and the future of work. It's going to be amazing. Make sure you sign up for that as well. Uh, okay, everybody, that's about it. Have a good weekend. Thanks for watching.